Today on Golden Girls Sports, Dorothy refuses to sell a hockey stick once used by an NHL legend with a dark life off the ice. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. Blind Ambitions was the second to last episode of the Golden Girls' first season. It premiered on March 29, 1986, and was directed by Terry Hughes with a script by R.J. Collery. In the main story, Rose deals with the best way to care for her blind sister, Lily who is played by Alice co-star and grit-kissing pioneer Polly Holiday, A former high school track star in the 100-yard dash, Lily lost her sight six months ago and pretends to have her life under control, but is really in Miami to take Rose back to Chicago with her. I've never been one to depend on other people, Rose, you know that. But this is different. Than you, you're not trying out for the track team at high school. You're, you're trying to learn to cope with daily life as a blind person. Do you see this dress, Rose? It's my favorite. It's awfully pretty. It's my favorite because it's the only one I can clearly remember. I remember what it looks like. And I remember what it looks like on me. And because of that, I wear it all the time. At the same time, the girls have a garage sale in the hopes of collecting enough cash to buy a new TV. Per the rules of sitcom law, they realize at the sale that they don't actually want to sell anything. So while Blanche refuses to part with a pair of Elvis-shaped salt and pepper shakers and Rose won't let go of her childhood teddy bear, Dorothy explains that they simply need to move on from their old stuff. Until it's her turn. I mean, what's the use of having a garage sale if we can't part with anything? How much for this hockey stick? $1,100. Dorothy. This isn't an ordinary hockey stick. Bobby Hull used this. This is a piece of history. It's a piece of junk. And the price tag says four dollars. Four fifty. I'll take it. Uh, okay, but listen, before you go, uh, come into the house with me. I'll show you the kind of wood oil that I use on it. Wood oil? Are you buying that? Of course not. Everybody knows you use paraffin wax on parched wood. Back inside the house, Dorothy gives the guy twenty-five bucks to buy the stick back, and tells her friends that he changed his mind about it. But the jig and the garage sale clearly are up. So the girls decide to use their current cash and credit to buy that TV. And Rose decides it's better for Lily to learn to live on her own than to be her caretaker. This is the only Golden Girls episode for writer R.J. Collery, who also wrote under the name Bob Collery for a ton of other shows like Benson, Saved by the Bell, Harry and the Hendersons, Touched by an Angel, and The Fairly Odd Parents. Collery says that the show used freelance writers like him in that first season because they desperately needed scripts to get more episodes into production and meet the demands of the viewing public. It wasn't an easy one to write, given that there was very little previous material to draw from, but today, this is the credit his daughters and their friends are most impressed by. Polly Holiday was born in Jasper, Alabama on July 2, 1937, and honed her stagecraft at the illustrious Oslo Repertory Theater in Sarasota, Florida. After more than a decade on stage, she got her big break on CBS's Alice in 1976. The part of brash waitress Flo Castleberry was practically made for her and she earned three Emmy nominations in a spin-off series of her own by 1980. Flo, the series only lasted a year and a half, but Polly kept on going. She's performed on stage in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Arsenic and Old Lace, 
and on TV in Home Improvement and The Client. She's also been in movies like Gremlins, Mrs. Doubtfire, and the remake of The Parent Trap. Stuart Fratkin, the guy who played the guy who wants to buy the hockey stick and who is listed as man number two on the IMDb page for this episode, did lots of character roles throughout the 80s and 90s. His two biggest parts were as the replacement Styles, the Jason Bateman's replacement Michael J. Fox in Teen Wolf 2, and as Abe, one of the two goofball alien twins who take a road trip across America in the short-lived, little-remembered syndicated sitcom They Came From Outer Space. I remember that show. But for us, this episode is all about that historic Bobby Hull stick, one that helped revolutionize the game of hockey and changed not one but two professional leagues forever. And when his playing days were over, Hull found new ways to make headlines that also still reverberate among fans, only for the wrong reasons. The 1956-57 Chicago Blackhawks were a bad hockey team. Very bad. They won just 16 out of 70 games, and in a National Hockey League that only had six teams, the Blackhawks finished sixth, same place they finished in the three previous seasons. Chicago had made the playoffs just once in the last 11 years, and attendance at Old Chicago Stadium had dwindled to pretty pathetic levels. That same season, 18-year-old left-wing Bobby Hull scored 33 goals for the St. Catharines Teepees, the Blackhawks' top junior team at the time. Hull, who had officially been Chicago's property since a scout first saw him at the age of 13, got a surprise call up to the big club for a preseason game against the New York Rangers in September of 1957. He scored two goals that night against future Hall of Fame goalie Gump Worsley and never saw the junior leagues again. Hull would eventually be nicknamed the Golden Jet, an allusion to his tight, wavy blonde hair and the relentless speed at which he glided about the ice. Even as a teen, he was muscular in a way few hockey players were at the time, the byproduct of grueling farm work back in his hometown of Point Anne, Ontario. A picture of Bobby Hull in his prime recalls matinee idols like Buster Crabb, the former Olympic swimmer who went on to play comic strip heroes Tarzan, Flash Gordon, and Buck Rogers in 1940s movie serials. I always kind of thought Bobby Hull looked like Silver Age Aquaman, too. At least once, he played a superhero in real life, rescuing several family members, including his mother, when a boat they were on exploded due to a gas leak in 1960. Chicago missed the postseason in Hull's first campaign, as he scored just 13 goals and came in second for the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year. They returned to the playoffs the next two seasons and won the Stanley Cup in 1961 by first beating the five-time defending Stanley Cup champion Montreal Canadiens in the semifinals, then topping Detroit in the final. Bobby Hull's arrival had brought Chicago its first Stanley Cup in 23 years, but his legend in the city was just getting warmed up. Hull won his second Art Ross Trophy as the league's leading point producer by scoring 50 goals in 1961-62 and becoming only the third man to accomplish that feat in NHL history at the time. The Blackhawks returned to the Cup Final, but lost in six games to the Toronto Maple Leafs. He became the first player in league history to exceed 50 goals, scoring 54 in 1965-66, the same year he captured his second consecutive Hart Trophy as NHL MVP. He led the league in goals the next three years too, topping out at 58 in 1968-69. That was the year he became the second player to score 100 points in a season, hitting the mark just 18 days after Boston's Phil Esposito had already done it. Chicago also made appearances in the Stanley Cup Final in 1965 and 71, losing each in seven games to the Canadiens. At the time of Hull's first retirement from the game in 1978, the Chicago Tribune's David Israel compared his skating to a cheetah eluding a hunter and wrote, quote, for watching Bobby Hull rush the length of the ice to a shot was watching a master artist at work. It was watching Baryshnikov or Nureyev dance. 
It was listening to Cassell's or Rubenstein. A rush up the ice by Bobby Hull was a brilliant aesthetic achievement, regardless of the result. End quote. One of the many instruments at Hull's disposal was a devastating slap shot that was aided by a severely curved stick blade. Hull and teammate Stan Makita were pioneers of the so-called banana blade, putting curves in their sticks that could bend up to an inch and a half from heel to toe. Hull would use hot tap water on the wooden blade until it was soft, stick it under a door, and prop up the handle with a chair. Overnight, the blade would set into basically a C-shape, and Hull would deploy it as he used NHL goalies as target practice. Unsurprisingly, the goalies didn't like it. And after a few seasons, the league started instituting more strict guidelines about stick curves, which can now result in a two-minute penalty if a player is found in violation. Hull groused about the new rules, but he still scored goals in bunches, potting another 50 in 71-72. In a fierce sports city, Hull was an icon, and his name was included among Chicago's heaviest hitters at the time, like the Bears' Gale Sayers and Dick Butkus, and Ernie Banks and Ferguson Jenkins of the Cubs. But his 15th season... 11 of which he was named an all-star in, would be his last in the Windy City. The Blackhawks were owned at the time by Bill Wirtz, a notoriously tight-fisted curmudgeon that was derisively called Dollar Bill by frustrated fans. Hull had felt underpaid and underappreciated by Blackhawks' ownership for years and was prone to walking away from the team for a few days to make a point about one grievance or another. In the early 70s, hockey was everywhere. The NHL rapidly expanded from six teams to 14 in the span of four years, and a nine-team Rebel League called the World Hockey Association was just getting off the ground. The WHA wanted an established marquee name to draw curious eyes away from the half-century-old NHL. At 32 years old, Hull was one of hockey's best players and biggest stars. He scored 604 goals in his career, eclipsing the numbers of the legendary Maurice the Rocket Richard for second in NHL history behind the equally legendary Gordie Howe. With a talent like Bobby Hull at a public impasse with his club, call was made by one of the WHA's flagship franchises. Hull didn't necessarily want to leave Chicago, but he didn't want to sit around waiting for a contract offer from Wirtz either. He was seeking a five-year deal worth $250,000 a year from the Blackhawks. So he told the Winnipeg Jets at the WHA that he'd sign for that sum, plus a million-dollar signing bonus, never expecting the upstart league to actually come through with the cash. But the WHA's owners pooled their money, about $110,000 each, and when Chicago didn't match the offer, Bobby Hull was off to Winnipeg, Manitoba as player coach on a 10-year, $2.75 million contract. That bonus made Hull the first professional athlete to cross the magical $1 million mark, and it set a new expectation for players in all leagues. Soon, he was joined in the WHA by contemporaries like Derek Sanderson and Bernie Perrant, who also jumped to the rival league with the promise of big paydays and stardom in new markets. A few years later, pitcher Catfish Hunter would be granted free agency from the Oakland A's, and sign a contract with the New York Yankees that included a million-dollar signing bonus, changing how baseball teams did business, too. It's uncertain if Hunter ever sent Hull a thank-you note. While fans in Chicago railed against Wirtz for letting Hull go, his arrival in Winnipeg was greeted with a literal parade. He stood at the corner of the city's famous Portage and Main intersection with a giant check that signaled an important deal had been struck. This small prairie city in the desolate middle of Canada was about to become one of hockey's hottest spots. Switching leagues didn't slow Hull down one bit. He scored over 50 goals in each of the next four seasons, including an unbelievable 77 in 1974-75. That was the first season in which he played on a line with Ulf Nilsson and Anders Hedberg, two talented Swedish imports that were both more than 10 years Hull's junior. The trio, dubbed the Hotline, 
combined for 362 points that season, and yet Winnipeg missed the playoffs thanks to the WHA's weird divisional structure. Hull, Nilsson, and Hedberg had a combined 342 points a season later, leading the Jets to their first Avco Cup championship in a sweep over Howe's Houston Arrows. In seven WHA seasons, the Jets made the final five times, including four in a row, and won three Avco Cups. Only the last one didn't involve Hull. Four games into the 1978-79 season, 39-year-old Bobby Hull announced his retirement due to, quote, personal reasons. Quote, I have not been able to devote my full attention to the game, and therefore, in fairness to my teammates and management, I feel like this is the right decision for all parties, end quote. His WHA career ended with an additional 303 goals scored, all for Winnipeg. But hockey fans hadn't seen the last of Bobby Hull on the ice. In 1979, the WHA folded for good, and four of its teams, the Hartford Whalers, Quebec Nordiques, Edmonton Oilers, and Winnipeg Jets, were merged into the NHL. Although they already had full rosters, each one of the four new teams was only allowed to protect two players, with the rest going up for grabs in an expansion draft. Players that had NHL contracts when they jumped to the WHA had their rights returned to their NHL clubs. That meant that Bobby Hull was once again property of the Chicago Blackhawks. Bill Wirtz had previously declared that, quote, if Bobby Hull comes back to the National Hockey League, he will play for the Chicago Blackhawks. He will never play an NHL game at Chicago Stadium if he's not in a Blackhawks uniform, end quote. Now that they were once again face-to-face, the Blackhawks weren't interested in a reunion. So he was exposed in the expansion draft and selected by the Winnipeg Jets. But at 41 years old, the Golden Jet only managed to play 18 games for Winnipeg in 1979-80. He asked for a trade, but takers were hard to find with that big contract still in effect. Finally, he was dealt to Hartford, putting he, Howe, and another 60s legend, Dave Keon, all on the same team. Hull only played nine regular season and three playoff games for the Whalers. Hull attempted a comeback in 1981, playing with the Rangers in a few exhibition games. The team invited him to a tryout after he had expressed interest in reuniting with Hedberg and Nilsson, who had both left Winnipeg for New York a few years earlier. After five games and one goal, Hull wasn't given a contract and never suited up for the Rangers during the regular season. Two years after his last gasp, Bobby Hull was elected into the Hockey Hall of Fame. When the Blind Ambitions episode of the Golden Girls first aired, the above information constituted the majority of what the public knew about Bobby Hull. In a pre-internet, pre-ESPN, local news, library era, all of that stuff could be found in any newspaper or sports almanac. Maybe you might have heard about Hull's contentious divorce back in the 80s, which wouldn't have been unusual for a star athlete. But if you wrote a sitcom gag for an American audience about a hockey stick and needed to attach the name of a famous player to it, preferably one from the 50s or 60s, Bobby Hull was about as universally known as hockey players got, matched only by Gordie Howe and Bobby Orr, who came around long after them. But starting a year after the show aired, more details about Bobby Hull's life began to emerge. And as time went on, even up to today, the glory he found on the ice would be overshadowed by disturbing tales of domestic abuse, alcoholism, absentee parenting, racism, and Nazi sympathizing. In April of 1987, Hull pleaded guilty to assaulting a suburban Chicago police officer in a parking lot the previous December. At the time of the assault, the cop was interceding in an argument between Hull and his wife, Deborah. When officers arrived at the argument and tried to take Hull into custody, he took a swing at one and then ran inside he and Deborah's condo. Cops busted down the door and arrested him. Deborah was bruised around the head 
but declined to be treated by paramedics. She later dropped battery charges because she didn't want to testify against her husband. After his plea, Bobby Hull was fined $150 and given six months court supervision. This wasn't the first time domestic disturbance involving Bobby Hull had spilled into the public eye. About seven years earlier, Hull and his first wife Joanne went through a divorce that their son Brett would later call violent, and which brought a lot of secrets for light. Joanne McKay was a figure skater with Hilton Hotels. She met Hull in Chicago Stadium in 1960, as his star with the hometown Blackhawks was just ascending. They were married inside of three months, and went on to have five kids together over the next decade. Bobby Jr., Blake, Brett, Bart, and Michelle. For that decade, the Hulls seemed like the picture-perfect family. Bobby was the famous one, but Joanne was a presence of her own, even getting some airtime during intermission broadcasts to discuss her painting, the kids, or just being, as this report called her, Mrs. Bobby Hull. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the day when we can be full-time farmers. Until that day, Joanne, do you think that this has helped the boys at all, the fact that they're living in Chicago and spend some time in Canada and get to travel around a little bit is a good one? Well, Jim, at first I didn't think it was going to be. I thought, oh, you know how they talk about security for children and so forth, and I thought, you know, they'd be moved around too much. But they're pretty well-adjusted boys, and uh, now this is the first year that Bobby's in school. He's in first grade, my six-year-old. And um, so we'll stay here now till the end of the school year. I will. I think Bob will be up to the farm about a month early. But uh, it'll all work out. Pretty well-adjusted boys with some pretty well-adjusted parents from the National Hockey League. Joy, thank you very much. We'll return with more hockey to the Chicago Stadium in just a moment. The real story was something entirely different. We wouldn't hear about the full extent of the abuse until 2002, when ESPN aired a Warts and All Sports Century special on Hull. It was in that show that Joanne went into harrowing detail about the injuries and intimidation she had experienced from her ex-husband. Of particular note was an incident that happened on a trip to Hawaii that was just one of the reasons she filed for divorce in 1970. Joanne told ESPN, quote, He just picked me up, threw me over his shoulder, threw me in the room, and just proceeded to knock the heck out of me. He took my shoe with a steel heel and proceeded to hit me in the head. I was covered in blood, and I could remember him holding me over the balcony, and I thought, this is the end. I'm going, end quote. The couple later reconciled, but that didn't mean that everything was rosy. Joanne filed for divorce again in the summer of 1977. A year later, Bobby threatened her with a shotgun. In his 2011 book, The Devil and Bobby Hull, veteran hockey writer Gerd Joyce goes into grave details about the ugly divorce the Hulls went through between 1979 and 1980. Using court records and transcripts, Joyce paints the proceedings as a pitch-black comedy, starring the jock bully against the nerd lawyer and the exasperated authority figures. Going into the final hearings, Hull owed Joanne over $6,000 in back alimony, and almost $10,000 to his lawyers, whom he hadn't paid in four months. He had fired a bunch of attorneys over time and decided to represent himself. During his cross-examination of Joanne, he belligerently badgered her until the judge told him to back off. Joyce wrote, quote, Hull seemingly thought he could get out from an unfavorable decision simply by the force of his celebrity, end quote. Meanwhile, Joanne's lawyer frustrated Hull and made him look like a fool, something that angered to no end the man known for getting his way on the ice. The matters of the former player's finances were hard to nail down, with Joanne's lawyer at one point saying Bobby should give her his one-ninth share of the Winnipeg Jets. She could have them, was his response. The divorce was granted on June 20th, 1980. 
Bobby Hull was ordered to pay back support of $600,000 plus $4,000 a month in child and spousal support. Bobby appealed that decision, but the judge didn't think either side had a case. He had applied for custody of the kids at first, but eventually dropped the request. Michelle, Bart, Blake, and Brett, who was 15 at the time, went to live with Joanne in Vancouver. The divorce was extraordinarily difficult for the children. Bart, the youngest boy, later said, quote, my parents should never have met, end quote. Michelle, the youngest and only girl, who was just nine when the divorce was happening, later became a lawyer specializing in domestic abuse cases. She remembers alcohol being a catalyst for much of Hull's actions, telling ESPN, quote, a lot of bad memories stem from how my dad acted when he was drinking. When he had been drinking, you'd just know that you didn't want to be around here, end quote. And Brett Hull went on to become Brett Hull, Stanley Cup champion, NHL MVP, and Hockey Hall of Famer in his own right, who scored 741 goals, 137 more than his dad. As of 2017, Brett is fourth on the NHL's all-time goal-scoring list, while Bobby is 17th. If you thought having an NHL superstar as a father would afford you some personalized, round-the-clock, intimate instructions on the game, you would be wrong. Bobby Hull described his son Brett as, quote, the kid who did the least work and scored the most goals. Even Brett has said he himself is, quote, the laziest man alive, and that he's, quote, not into expending physical energy. I'm into expending mental energy, end quote. Bobby jokes that the only thing he passed on to Brett was his genes. Before the divorce, Brett and his brothers ran roughshod over Winnipeg Arena as kids, creating mischief and simply being around Bobby's Jets teammates. In his memoir, Brett, his own story, Brett says it was in Winnipeg in the early 70s that his love for hockey began to take root. He and the kids played with and marveled at the skills and sticks of Jet stars Kent Nilsson and Ulf Nilsson and had a caring on-call doctor figure and trainer Bill Bozak. But just because Brett loved being around hockey, it doesn't mean he loved playing it. He was often forced into his skates for youth games and saw no point in warming up. At first, he even wanted to play goalie because it meant less skating around. Where was Bobby? He was there, but he kind of wasn't. Brett has said, quote, He wasn't much of a teacher when it came to hockey. He wanted us to watch him and do what he did. He was a typical dad. Nothing was good enough. End quote. After the divorce, Bobby just wasn't around, period. Once Joanne and the kids left for Vancouver, Bobby was largely absent from their lives for most of the next decade. Joanne later got remarried to accountant Harry Robinson, who became close with Brett. In his book, Brett credits them with having the faith that he'd turn out okay one day, even when he was an overweight kid playing in midget hockey or a teenager getting into trouble with friends and slacking in school. Still, he knew playing in the NHL was what he wanted to do. He scored a ton of goals in junior hockey at Pennington and even more for the University of Minnesota Duluth. Drafted in the sixth round by Calgary in 1984, Brett struggled with self-doubt in the minors until a trade to St. Louis allowed him to finally unleash his devastating potential. He scored over 70 goals three straight seasons, including 86 in 1990-91, the third most for a single season in NHL history. The two appear together at events today, and they seem to have mended whatever fences they had. Brett Hull made his way in hockey knowing his last name and remarkable physical resemblance to his dad was what people saw first. He might have been, quote, lazy, but his raw shooting talent and loose, fun personality helped him forge a path away from just being Bobby Hull's son. After the divorce from Joanne was completed, Bobby met and dated Claudia Allen, and the two had a daughter together. 
1980, Alan was in a severe car accident, and Bobby was granted leave from the whalers to care for her. The couple separated in 1983, and a year later, Hull married Deborah. Three years after that was the condo parking lot incident. But it doesn't end there either. In a 1998 interview with the Moscow Times, Hull was quoted saying some hateful things, including that there were too many black people in the U.S., that the Canadian welfare system was being abused, and that Adolf Hitler was on the right track. Hull told the paper, quote, Hitler, for example, had some good ideas. He just went a little bit too far, end quote. He later claimed to be set up and sued both the Moscow Times and the Toronto Sun for slander and defamation. The papers didn't retract their stories, and the cases appear to have been dropped. Since about the late 1970s, asking Bobby Hull a question has meant bracing herself for a multitude of possible answers. He could be gregarious and funny. He could be hyperbolic. He could entertainingly castigate the NHL, its owners, and today's players. Or he could be disturbingly cruel, and in some cases, such as the Moscow Times story, abhorrently racist. In a 20 Questions article in the National Post during the release of his 2010 book, The Golden Jet, it's clear the anger from his 1980 divorce is still present for Bobby Hull. When asked why Joanne was simply referred to as their mother, where the book included pictures of his kids, Hull brought up the fact that she goes by Joanne Hull Robinson now. Quote, if you don't fucking like me, then what are you doing using my name if you don't like me? Forget the Hull in the middle. End quote. In that same interview, Hull says he's the same guy as always with the same outlook on life. He and Deborah are still married despite the incident in 1987. Quote, I think that my wife is a better wife now than when we got married, and that was 28 years ago. End quote. Saying the second wife you battered is a quote, better wife now, doesn't sound the way Bobby Hull thinks it sounds. At the NHL's 2017 Winter Classic outdoor game at St. Louis's Bush Stadium, the Blues hosted their old rivals, the Chicago Blackhawks. Both Bobby and Brett Hull were on hand to drop the ceremonial puck, representing the teams they had had their most productive years with. Since 2007, Bobby Hull has been a team ambassador for the Blackhawks, having mended relations with them, no doubt aided by the death of Bill Wirtz that same year. After an airing of grievances with Wirtz's son Rocky, now the team's owner and chairman, Hull was brought back into the fold with team president John McDonough saying, quote, the franchise needed a dose of charisma and personality, end quote. His main jobs as ambassador are signing autographs, wearing a Blackhawks jersey to events, and telling old stories from the glory days. Given his past incidents of assault, verbal belligerence, and racism, Hull makes for a problematic ambassador. After that Winter Classic appearance, Satchel Price, of SB Nation's Second City Hockey, called Hull's inclusion in the event an embarrassment. Quote, Someone with a lengthy history of domestic abuse, someone who reportedly openly defended Adolf Hitler, should not be worthy of that. When the Blackhawks send him out to represent their organization, they're putting a stamp of approval on him. Even if he's one of the greatest players in franchise history, his job as ambassador is to represent the best of the organization. If Bobby Hull is the best the Blackhawks can do, they should probably take a step back and do some reflection. End quote. Writer Colin Fast had similar feelings when Hull, along with Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nilsson, were the first inductees into the Winnipeg Jets Hall of Fame. Some people might hear about Bobby Hull's history of abuse and controversy and ask, who cares? They'll focus on his contributions on the ice. But all of it is Bobby Hull. And it's hard to hear his name referenced on a TV show, even in a throwaway gag on an old show packed to the gills with them, without recalling everything that the man has been responsible for, however incredible or ugly it might have been.
Blind Ambitions isn't the funniest episode of the Golden Girls ever made, but then again it wasn't trying to be. It wants to deal with the very serious subject of elderly people losing their sight and their independence as they age. Polly Holiday is a great actress, and if you grew up watching Alice like I did, you'll never forget the phrase, kiss my grits as long as you live. But as a born and bred Southerner, she's not exactly the most convincing Minnesotan in the history of television. Producer Terry Grossman was concerned that Betty White, who had pretty much only ever done comedy, wouldn't be able to stand toe-to-toe with Holiday in their dramatic scenes together. But White is very good at making Rose's concern for her troubled sister seem real and relatable. The opening scene and the garage sale scene are the two funniest parts of the show. Blanche's love for Elvis will be used to much better effect a few seasons later in Sophia's wedding, the legendary two-part episode in which Sophia gets remarried in front of an audience of mistakenly invited Elvis impersonators, one of whom was played by Quentin Tarantino. No, seriously, look it up. Ice hockey is my favorite sport. I still root for the New York Islanders in spite of myself. Hockey's not the go-to sport for most American sports fans, and those of us that are into it are usually desperate for any and all hockey references in any pop culture. So in a way, I'm glad the sport is at least represented on the Golden Girls, but I kind of wish born and bred New Yorker Dorothy had somebody else's used stick instead, even if it meant someone from the goddamn Rangers. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we'll talk about Mr. Bob Hope, a man frequently found in both war zones and golf courses. And folks, I gotta tell you, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Golden Girls Sports was written and produced by Dan Saracini. The opening theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.